want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. Welcome. I prayed for a different life. So, I make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Welcome to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. Every week. Charlie gave the rules that he and I decided. The first rule of Because You Watched is, I'm Charlie. And I'm Francesco. The second rule of Because You Watched is, I'm Francesco. And I'm Charlie. The third rule of Because You Watched is, we take a film that enjoyed significant mainstream success. The fourth rule of Because You Watched is, we use them as a starting point to discuss lesser known films that we think deserve greater attention. The fifth rule of Because You Watched is, if this is your first time on the podcast, you have to listen all the way through. I nailed it. Uh, hopefully we've cut out just all the times I fucked that up. Well, that took one take, one take. One take, it was yeah, perfect, yeah, right? One try, yeah, one uh, yeah. As I said, uh, this week we are talking about David Finch's 1999 male film, Bike Club. Mm-hmm. And joining us is our good friend, Antonia Strafford-Taylor. Hello. How are you, Antonia? <laughs> <laughs> I am fine, thank you. <laughs> I'm just swell. <laughs> so, um, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Generally? No. Oh, specifically. specifically about what? Uh, My shoe size is, is three. That's all we need. <laughs> you are a tiny munchkin. <laughs> and your pronouns? She, her. Cool. Okay. So let's just jump right into it. An unnamed ticking time bomb insomniac and Tyler Durden, a slippery soap salesman, wonderful alliteration, channel primal male aggression into a shocking new form of therapy. Their concept catches on with underground fight clubs forming in every town until an eccentric Marla Singer gets in the way and ignites an out-of-control spiral toward oblivion. That gives away a lot of the plot. The fact that it catches on quite as much as it does. I think that's more of a twist that yeah, gets revealed at the end. That feels lousy. That's lousy. Yeah. Then again, even it doesn't give away the main twist of this movie that everyone knows at this point. Yes. Did and that is that soap isn't real. What? Soap is one of the deep state's biggest cons. Yeah, exactly. And that's big, why you, big soap. And that's, <laughs> and that's why you never wash. Precisely. Uh, it's been a long day for everyone and we're just a bit loopy. Uh, so just quickly to go around, um, Fight Club, good or bad movie? I find this to be a confusing question, <laughs> but good, good movie, good movie. Good movie? Yeah, it's a good okay. movie. Yeah. With caveats, that I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. Oh, very good movie. Can I get into a bit of a parenthesis? I have a complicated relationship to this film. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, when I was 15 years of age, when I was a 15-year-old boy, this used to be my favourite film of all time oh. for all the wrong reasons. Yes! <laughs> and I was for years terrified to go back and watch it a bit for oh, the cringe of it. But actually re-watching it was quite illuminating because it highlighted... What I liked about the film, what is really good about this film, but also I think I was able to understand broadly why it was able to be co-opted by so many boys and teenagers who just idolised the central characters. Yeah, I like this movie and I dislike the way that it's... I, I, I genuinely believe that it's not a part of the film's makeup outside the fact that it was made in the 90s, mm. that it's toxic or misogynistic, but the co-opting of... Not the film itself, but a lot of motifs of the film. I don't blame the film for that. 
really. I, I think that I like David Fincher as a director, so maybe I'm biased, but I, I don't think that this film has the bent that a lot of people might dismiss it as having, if you actually I watch agree, it. I agree, I think. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. So yeah, what do you think, Andrew? We've all done more than one sentence. Well, I'm, I'm interested with what you're saying, Francesca, about um, you interpreting it a different way when you were like 15, because when I've watched it, I've always thought, I don't understand how people take a different thing from this. Not obviously with specifics, but the, the broad, in my opinion, point of it, I find it quite confusing how how it's been co-opted in that way, because I don't find it to be particularly subtle in, in what it's saying. Not that's a bad thing, but I'm, I'm interested that it gets, in my opinion, mis... Well, before mis- we get into that, what do you view it as saying? Uh, this is where I'm going to be really inarticulate, despite saying that I have a confident idea of what it's saying. <laughs> it says a lot of things, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, or at least, at least, I don't think that it's saying in any like you know with its chest any kind of like insane rhetoric. No, I don't think it's saying that Tyler Durden is who you should want to be, or that trying to become him is in any way a fruitful endeavor or worth pursuing. I'm probably going to get into more detail on why I think that is when we go into discussing the ending. But I just think that because the film wants you to relate to Edward Norton, then by praxis, the whole basically system of uh, the narrator plus Tyler Durden sort of gets... They treat them as two different people, but they are in fact the same person. Mm -hmm. And a lot of viewers treat them as the same person. So if they relate to Edward Norton, they end up relating to Tyler Durden as well. I don't know if the movie is really on the narrator's side I think the fact they don't make a point of saying oh it's a classic case of split personality disorder or like some sort of movie jargon for a mental health disorder I think it is meant to be a lot more figurative and a lot more and a lot more non-literal particularly in the way for example that he treats Marla I think that the film does in a weird way hold them accountable for the way that Tyler treats Marla and the fact that he is actively unable to get to grips with his feelings for Marla is on him and that's why Tyler even exists is because he is so disgusted by how he feels about this woman in the beginning that he has to create this alter ego this buffer between him and the woman that he has these confusing feelings for and the woman that in a lot of ways is his mirror because she's doing all the terrible things that he's doing I think that if you view it as that and the fact that it's his anxiety and his self-hate for regarding her then I think he is accountable and I think the film does know that whether or not that's clear enough in the film is a totally other debate but I think to me I think everything Tyler does particularly in how he treats Marla is on the narrator if you faithfully looked at the quote without any of the subtext you look at it and say okay capitalism is bad consumerism is a false ideology Tyler Durden is also a malignant presence that unlocks something in you but can push you too far in the other way and a recklessness that can harm other people. So I think that that is textual. I, I don't view that as being completely deep under so, the layers so of the So do film. you think people are doing a sort of middle ground where there's half some subtext they're reading into it and then not? I think that if Tyler Durden's whole thing is about we need to get rid of consumerism because it makes people just cogs in an endless machine, mm-hmm. Project Mayhem is a different machine. Yeah. And people that's are true. acting as virtually mindless cogs in it. They're all just like, we d- no questions. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we'll do whatever you say. <laughs> no, you're right. I was really yeah. highlighted when Meatloaf dies and they do the whole, his name is Robert Paulson mm. and they're just repeating everything he says and totally misinterpreting what he says because they're so mindlessly obedient. Yeah. Mm. This anarchist 
Yeah, but surely it's, surely it's meant to mirror the whole like IKEA furniture monotony. So that's exactly, that's what I'm saying. And but that's also curious about the film on a textual level because I think the film itself is trying to criticize mm. consumerism. Like I don't think it's a pro-consumerist film by any means necessary. It's very anti-Starbucks yeah. specifically. But that, that is and also, IKEA. But it's got so much product placement, right? Apparently, IKEA actually got a boost from the film because through the film, people found out you could order furniture by the phone. Oh my god! But I don't think that was intentional. No, it wasn't. But it's curious. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But... I don't think it's intentional yeah. product placement. Yeah. I think it is. Which, you know, <laughs> and you can buy Fight Club soap yeah. after the film came, comes out. Yeah, yeah. That but, but that, that's, that's a school why I would want that. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Fight Club soap is funny. Well, again, yeah, in that case, we have to distinguish between the decisions of the creatives and the yeah, decisions yeah. of the studio. I think that a lot of these, and we're talking about, you know, alt-right, incel people g- generally, right? Yeah. I think a lot of them just don't want to admit that they want to fuck Brad Pitt in this movie. I think that's where the misinterpretation comes from. Yeah. It's just like Edward Norton doesn't know how to deal with his feelings for Helena Bonham Carter, incels don't know how to deal with the fact that they want to fuck Brad Pitt. Crucially, the book, <laughs> so b- well, the book was written by Chuck Palahniuk, a gay man. Mm. He didn't hide the subtext that mm. not only Tyler Durden is the person that the narrator wants to be, is the person that the narrator wants to fuck. Mm-hmm. When Tara Durden shows up for the first time in the book, he's fully naked, glistening in the sun on a nudist speech. Amazing. <laughs> and, yeah, the, yeah. Like, the plain bit is totally made up for the yeah. film. Mm. And I also think that, so again, I read, it, I read the book like over 10 years ago, so I don't remember, but I think that when in the film Marla and Tyler are fucking and the narrator is clearly jealous of Marla. In the book, I think it's a bit more dubious. It might be jealous of Tyler, actually. Like, mm. it might be one of being Marla's place rather than Tyler's. But it's kind of like, you know, menage a trois mm. between the three of them in the truest sense of the word, where they all <laughs> want to fuck each other. That just reminded me, which kind of links back to things being interpreted weirdly and the accidental IKEA product placement. <laughs> it's that bit on the plane where he's like, the oxygen's just to get you high. Like, look at them, they're happy on the poster. They're happy they're dying because the oxygen. Um, I did Google it to be like, well, no, but like how many people think that's, and it is just like, it's obviously completely not true. And it is very much just a myth that's been peddled accidentally by Fight Club. And now a lot of people honestly believe that thing about the oxygen mask being to get people high. So it accidentally peddled that myth because people are listening, like viewers, presumably, are listening to Tyler Durden say that. And they're like, wow, really? It's like, you watch it as adults and you're like, this guy's full of shit. Yeah. But, but then, yeah. So I, I would be interested in finding out a split of like men and women broadly that have watched that if who is sort of taken in by that because I watch that and immediately I think assume not just of Tyler Durden but of like a lot of hyper masculine men that sort of chat straight off the bat I'm like that's horse shit yeah immediately I'm assuming whether that's right or wrong then everything that comes out of your mouth is probably a little bit bullshitty these lines that he says in the plane are so clearly like you take something very mundane and you make the edgiest interpretation of it. So it's not necessarily like, of course he's full of shit, but he's also like trying to add shock value to mundane life, which is why I think a lot of 15-year-old boys relate to it or think, oh, this guy's cool, this guy's true, because that's how a lot of like 15-year-old brains work. <laughs> well, like, he's yeah. like your friend's cool older brother who smokes a lot of weed. And then okay, you the leave. time you think is really cool. And then, and then like... you leave school and you come back and it's like, like, that guy's still hanging around school? <laughs> That's like Matthew McConaughey in Days Don't Confused. Yeah, it's exactly, it's <laughs> yeah. exactly that vibe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I suppose as a 15-year-old girl, I was always 
maybe not scared of, but perturbed by those voices. <laughs> we should have been scared <laughs> of the 22-year-old like, uh, guy hanging around schools. Well, this 22-year-old this wants to hang out with us. Wait, this 22-year-old wants to hang out with us? <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 it is it is kind yeah. of a similar if you have that reading of the character it yeah. does kind of fall into place yeah and I think that sort of what you said about it not being based in reality the oxygen masks thing mm-hmm. if you think of Tyler as just something within him it is something that is so not based on evidence that he looks at the fact they're smiling and his brain as Tyler goes huh well that must be they're smiling because of this that and the other rather than because of anything he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. What do you think of the actual Fight Club sequences? Funny. They are funny. So, so funny. <laughs> Tell us why you think that. Because it's funny. Because <laughs> they're beating each other up. <laughs> I'm sorry, violence is funny. You heard it here first. <laughs> I'm not going to add any caveats to that statement. Okay. Um, no, I don't know. It's, it's the... I do, I do find hyper-masculinity inherently funny mm, in yeah, I, I, virtually every presentation of it all the time. Including in real it, life. Especially in real life. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's just that. That of it all. That, that's funny to me. I think that it's particularly... My, my, the most funny part of those sequences and possibly the film is when the, the owner comes down <laughs> and it's the one time that anyone in the film has anything resembling real-life awareness. Mm. But he's just coming. What the fuck? Like, what's going on? Here? Like, and everyone's taking it super seriously. Like, it's this religious cleansing experience. And this guy's like, "What the fuck is this? Mm. What's going on?" Like, guys, no, get out, all of you. Yep, they still beat each other up. Yeah, which is also funny, especially knowing the twist that he's like, "Well, Tyler just took it like a champ." And it's like, <laughs> like, you're getting beaten up, dude. <laughs> it so well I, I also love the sequence where they're all trying to get into fights in real life that's it's so just funny. really pathetic the guy <laughs> with the hose is just like spraying people hoping that they'll beat him up although I do love when he tries to get into the fight with the vicar yeah. and then the vicar turns up <laughs> at the fight club it's like little like, details like that. I think the film does have it quite a, like a wry and dark sense of humour and again I think it's meant to be funny no no I I agree but that's the other thing I don't believe that anyone that not that I want to define the film by its misinterpretations Mm -hmm. but for it to be satirical I think it has to kind of be it has to be funny which I think it is Mm -hmm. and I think if you miss the humour therefore you will also miss the satire yeah if you're someone that broadly speaking yeah isn't able to laugh at the inherent ridiculousness of contemporary society you are also going to take this film way too literally. <laughs> it's just also the way they're shot and the way they're lit. It's going back to what you're saying, even though you meet Tyler in a different way, the way that it's lit, particularly on Brad Pitt, there is a real sense of eroticism mm. in a sort of like gladiatorial way. Yeah. And like it's just very interesting that it's very explicitly masculine space. It wouldn't have the same effect if Tyler Durden was... Danny DeVito, he can take it. Danny DeVito would be an amazing Tyler Durden. <laughs> but then, what do you think of when it's revealed that Brad Pitt was at Northern along? What? <sighs> Sorry. And he, he was. You were meant to watch the film. In real life, in real life, not in the film. 
They were the same person. Oh, and God. So when, when it's revealed that the two of them are the same all along, and it goes back and shows those same Tyler Durden monologues, but they're now delivered by Edward Norton in yeah. his uh, nasally voice. <laughs> I think that's quite... That, that kind of highlights the silliness of it a little yeah. bit. That it's just this little guy just, just ranting himself, like, rat paper and cool. That it's almost believable that if Brad Pitt tells you to blow up a building, we all might blow up a building. Yeah. If Ed Norton told me to blow a building, I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, like you said, it's less ridiculous because it's Brad Pitt and he's yeah. playing the character in that way, whereas Edward Norton... Oh, God. It's sad. It's sad, sleep-deprived Edward Norton. Facts <laughs> <laughs> under his eyes came up to you. Oops, Telling you, you not like, to talk I about think, a thing. I think you should, I think you should like, blow up the building. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't forgive know, maybe, me, but I don't think I'd do it. I don't know, maybe don't talk about Fight Club, I don't know. <laughs> Another line that Edward Norton has, as himself, not, not as Tyler Durden, in during the fight, but when he when he beats Jared Leto to a pulp, which is wonderful, it's very funny. Oh. And when, when he says like, "I want to destroy something beautiful," <laughs> such a funny line. <laughs> it's funny anyway, but also what it really made me think of was like it sounds like something that you'd hear in like Twilight or something. Like it. it it sounds like an angsty teen girls line from the mid two thousands. Because they're all little thing. girls in this movie. Yeah, but like watching it, I, I thought like if if a girl said that line in any film, she would rightly have the piss taken out of her. I like this movie, and I I hope we haven't spent too much time just talking about what people have got from it in the wrong ways. But I think that there is something really fun and silly but also quite devastating about the movie. In a lot of ways, I think the capitalism that's portrayed in this movie is kind of nicer than what we have now. That not everything... It's about, you know, brands and possessions and things, but Mm. it's before, you know, commodification of just the self on social media. Mm. Even they talk about naming galaxies and planets after companies, and you have Amazon and SpaceX. <laughs> yeah, doing ads in space, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, I love ads in space. It's my favourite kind of ad. Yeah. Uh, we're just... We're, we're fucked. Uh, uh, should we talk about Marla a little bit before moving on? I'd love to. Okay. Helen <laughs> I mean, is great in this movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. She is... Uh, I just think she's lovely. She comes in and she's immediately menacing, but she's without doing a great deal. Mm. but also, like, is extremely sad and vulnerable in a way that really pisses the narrator off. Woman? In my spaces? I'm gonna have a split personality disorder <laughs> out of this. It's the only logical response. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, think she's, I think she's wonderful. I just think her outfits are great. Yeah. I love the dress that she got for a dollar that used to be a bridesmaid's dress and it was loved once and then discarded. I like yeah. that bit of the film. I just like it and I like the dress. I like. I should have complimented her on it more. Well, he's mean to her the whole time. He was mean to her, yeah. I don't know why they end up together. He's just mean. Oh, but that poor guy, he got shot in the face. We've all been shot in faces! (laughs) I actually haven't. Well, you're not a guy, you wouldn't get it. I guess I'm just built different. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think she's she's a lot of fun uh, in this movie, and she starts off as being like a bit of an archetype or a bit of a femme fatale style going on, but then you actually realise that his projection of these stereotypes onto her is actually causing her a lot of stress mm-hmm. and a lot of discomfort and he's just not dealing he's just not dealing with it in any healthy way at all 
Not that he deals with anything in the film in a healthy way at all. The most healthy thing he does in the whole film is shoot himself in the face. I actually, yeah. Because <laughs> no, but honestly, the, within the film's no, but within the film's logic, yeah. Because then he gets cured of yeah. the title disease. But within that. the language of the film, I'm not saying shooting yourself in the face is ever a responsible thing to do. I'm Please saying... do not shoot yourselves in the face. PSA. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole like Marla as uh, sort of femme fatale, sort of manic pixie dream girl, bit of both, whatever. At the beginning, manic demon nightmare girl. Yeah, that's hard to be fair. That is. Um, that's my type. <laughs> oh my god um, what I find interesting about particularly more leaning on the manic pixie dream girl spectrum of women in film um, or like archetypes that I think those sorts of women either in films and in real life when that's projected onto them there's this a misinterpretation that they are having sort of masculine traits kind of mirrored back to a man so it's like a kind of carefree like, so it's like she's saying a lot of the same stuff as he is at the beginning of the film about everything being pointless and like well we were just dying we were going to die anyway one day and like what's the point um, the, the tragic think... thing is that she could die at any moment the tragedy is that she didn't mm. no because he saves her from an attempt uh, at her own life and then she kind of develops a codependency with him and it's actually like it's a bit weird because like after that you can see that she's probably had this very traumatic experience but it also put a bit of perspective in, in her life that she's now moving on from her self-destructiveness. And there you get something like the dress scene, mm. which is you know a distinctly female-coded moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just no longer being a tomboy, if you will. Uh, so again, I think the problem is that at the beginning of the film, they might, the two of them might be in the same place. But then she starts gradually healing, he sinks further and further into the abyss and tries basically, or maybe doesn't try, but inadvertently drags her in with him. The other thing that I think makes that character work, outside of the performance, which I think is wonderful, is the fact that his behaviour, or specifically the Tyler part of his personality's behaviour, is having consequences for her that aren't convenient for the plot. Mm. in a lot of films where not that she is a manic extreme girl because they tend to be more on like the light side but I mm. think that in a lot of characters like that you don't really see anything affect these characters until it's time for like a third act crisis yeah. when they're like it's not I that you're moving to California it's that you lied about it <laughs> and that's like in all these movies and it's the same fucking thing all the time whereas for this she's just like getting more and more annoyed the whole way through from mm-hmm. the beginning because he's just not acknowledging her as a person and as a romantic partner because he's been told not to by this dark part of himself. Yeah. Yeah, and even when she gets kidnapped, that's more of an excuse to get her in the right place at the right time for the final shot. She doesn't turn into a damsel in distress or anything like that. If anything, he's the damsel in distress in that scene. So... Sure, hang it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate to go back to the incel of it all, but it's interesting that the bad guys or the Project Mayhem, which are the obstacle, are the ones that want to take Marla out, Mm. are the ones that want Mm. to destroy that part of the narrator's life. Mm. And the alt-right reading of this is that Marla is the obstacle, and that it's a thematic inconsistency at the end of the film, or or it's a subtle sort of satirical ending that they give you, that it's a romantic ending, 
I just don't know how you can watch this film and view her as the villain. I don't think you can. No, well, people, maybe, people, yeah. no, people I, do. I suppose yeah. if you view the very ending, yeah, as you were saying, as the bad bit about the film, or not the bad bit about the film, but that it's like a bad ending, not um, in terms of quality, but in terms of all, like that was a sad ending to the film. They ended up together and she successfully ruined the day because I suppose from a more incelly point of view, there is that, what's the point of it all? Everything's going to go to shit anyway. Thank you, yeah. That is like very much a, a keystone of incel talking points and culture, if you will. But yeah, that it's like that it's all kind of hopeless. That the whole incel thing kind of hinges on everything being hopeless. Because the second that any of them have hope for change, that the whole thing kind of crumbles. So I can sort of understand actually that if you're already thinking that sort of thing or whatever, that that the ending being not exactly sad, but you know what I mean, yeah. an unhappy ending. From their point of view, that that's actually sort of consistent with what with that ideology. Yeah. Oh, uh, how do you guys interpret the ending? As in, like, first of all, do you like it? But also, what catharsis do you think it brings if you do like it? Because to me, I, I quite like it, and I like the idea of ultimate at the core of this film, it's a love story about two self-destructive people living in a world that encourages self-destruction, being able to actually accept something that might give their life real meaning outside of societal pressures and societal conformity and consumerism. And I think that's very sweet. And if you take all that weirdness out of the film, at its core, it is a film about two people learning how to begin a relationship that isn't Hmm. totally toxic. And I think that's, and that's very much like my reading of it, like from a humanist perspective, if you view it like that, I think you can actually find that relationship quite sweet. What do you guys think? I think that's fair. I don't really have many strong feelings about the ending at all. Okay. I've, what about I've, the credits? The opening or the closing? Because the, the opening credits I love. They're immediately funny to me. Because <laughs> they're sort of like Spy Kids level graphics. <laughs> the CGI in they, this film hasn't aged particularly well, I will say. I think that adds to it. I, think I agree. The charm. And I think that opening sequence, to me, that, see, that's, I don't think that's the thing. I actually made a note about this, about the opening credits. To me, they're funny immediately because of all of that. But also that they're like trying to be cool in a way that is not cool because it comes off like a Spy Kids film, even I think at the time. So right off the bat, I sort of think like this film isn't unironically cool. Look at the opening credits. They're silly. This is silly. It's a silly film about silly silly men. Yeah. Doing silly men things because they're scared to talk to a girl. The credits are so hardcore. There's like electricity. It's about a guy that thinks girls have cooties. It's like a flame shirt. Okay, now for availability, Fight Club is available to stream on Disney Plus, Prime Video, and Virgin TV Go. You can rent it on Rakuten TV, Amazon, Apple TV Plus, Google Play, Sky Store, Microsoft, and YouTube. And you can buy it on all of those platforms as well. Now, let's move on to, I don't know, whatever. To the next film. I like mine better. <laughs> Synonyms, a 2019 Franco-Israeli film directed by Nadav Lapid. Yoav, a young Israeli man, 
absconds to Paris to flee his nationality, aided by his trusty Franco-Israeli dictionary. So this is the online synopsis of it, very concise. Gonna add just a bit more information to that for the listeners. Um, he, at the beginning of the film, gets all his possessions stolen and ends up befriending an upper-class French couple, uh, Emile and Caroline, who sort of become his uh, guardians of sorts for the first bit of the film. So why did I choose this film for Fight Club? Uh, this was a hugely debated decision, so for the longest time I was going to go with Claire Denise's Beau Travail as a pick for this episode, which I think would have been thematically really, really good, to the point of being obvious. So Synonyms is this film that I think, to me, Stylistically, very dissimilar from Fight Club. Target audience, very dissimilar from Fight Club. However, it speaks to that same internalized aggression that causes the protagonist to alienate himself from society. It's a film that is framed through this very individualistic lens. There are so many POV shots of just his eyes darting around the place and this very like hectic, almost like restless affect to it, then re-watching it after having seen Fight Club only solidified my choice because of reasons that I'll expand on later. But first, what do you guys think of this film? This film was very polarizing when it was released. A lot of people loved it, a lot of people hated it. And I want to hear what you guys think. I liked it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the last act holds up to the rest of the film. I can agree with I that. I think that there's too much that's sort of not tied... Not that I need everything tied up in a nice little bow, but there's a lot of things that seem to be building to some sort of thematic, if not narrative, resonance. I mean, it's not a short film, but it just sort of left me wanting a bit more. Having said that, I think that it's a really funny film. Mm-hmm. I think that the satirical bent is more explicit than it is in Fight Club. I think Tom Mercier is fantastic as... Yoav, I, I think he feels like a real human being with ridiculous characteristics rather than a ridiculous character. You know, it's his first film role. Yeah. Yeah. I, and the name looked so French that I wondered if he wasn't Israeli. And he is Israeli, but I don't speak French, but I believed that he was speaking French very well, but not naturally. I think it's implied by the subtitles and other things that he speaks a very literary French. So he probably learned it through literature and books. And it's like Proustian it, French. Yeah, basically. Like he didn't learn it naturally by living in France. He probably read a lot before moving there. And yeah. Then, yeah. That, Antonia, what do you think? I found it very interesting. I was interested by it. I don't know how much I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I think I agree about the like latter portion of it. Because that for me was where I definitely trailed off in terms of the bits that I was grabbing onto was like, oh, I'm interested in that. And then I sort of felt like I couldn't fully gobble them up. Yeah. Yeah. I I can agree with that. I think this is, I I personally love this film, but Mm. I'm aware that it's not a very audience friendly film. And I think that if you know in advance that basically the structure of the film is going to be a a bit anarchic and it's going to maybe jump from place to place and mostly focus on snippets of Yoav's life in France, then you can, you know, take it a bit more as it is. But I don't think the beginning of the film sets that up. I think the beginning of the Mm -hmm. film kind of sets you up for a more, if not, you know, three-act 
narrative structure, because I don't think that's what you're expecting from the film, I think it sets you up for basically plot threads, as you guys phrased it, that will eventually each of them lead to something. But I don't know, rewatching it, I felt like almost the abandonment of these plot threads or just characters disappearing off screen without a word of goodbye, that adds to the naturalism of the film for me a bit more. And it adds also to the fact that as he goes further and further into the film, without spoiling it too much, but Yoav, he's being incredibly belligerent towards everyone around him, to the point of complete alienation. So it kind of makes sense that like people drop out of his life like that without making a huge uh, statement out of it. Again, I, I do think that as a slice of life, say, type of film, is very successful, if not as a narrative film. Obviously, I was watching this and comparing it to Fight Club. And so when Emil turns up, you think that this sort of guy who's a bit of a guru in how to survive in Paris, despite coming from a very, very different, much wealthier <laughs> perspective. Has he ever had to survive in any respects? <laughs> well, exactly. He's, quite, he's, a, he's a very wealthy character yeah. that can just hand out money like it's nothing and help support this guy. But he seems a bit like the closing to a Tyler mm -hmm. um, analogue. But then as you go further into it, and obviously the divide between Tyler and the narrator in Fight Club are different because they're the same person. But as you get into Yoav's views, in a lot of ways he is more similar to Tyler yeah. mm, because he has the same problem of wanting to tear everything down. Mm. And belligerent is a good word because it's not just to people, but it's to anything. It's to structures, it's to ideologies. But he doesn't have anything coherent to come back at it with. And partly because he's a very young character and who among us has everything figured out. But the idea that he speaks with such authority and such eloquence without actually coming up with anything original reminded me more of Tyler as the film went on. I was actually thinking the same thing in a lot of the early scenes between him and Emil where Emil almost felt more like a narrator type of character mm. who was this guy who is trapped basically in this bourgeois society. I know that's not the case for the narrator, it's more middle class, but he's, he's trapped in this like consumeristic society. And he looks at Yoav as someone who's completely free and unshackled. And Yoav becomes this model of inspiration for him. And there is, I mean, it's it's quite explicit. Like I don't think there's subtext that Emil is attracted to Yoav. Maybe not the other way around, but for certain, Emil. Like, <laughs> some of the lines he says are explicitly romantic. I think the way I read it is that Yoav is not asexual, but has a very low sex drive for anyone. He's clearly able to perform, mm -hmm. as we find out later in the film. But he talks about the fact that he has no sexual desire. So I don't think it's that it's not it's actively not reciprocated, um, but also I mean it lines up quite neatly as if Carolyn is the Marla analog, as a person who would throw a wrench into the dynamic between these two men, but she doesn't really. She kind of cocks block them when they're listening to music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're right. Uh, that, that's just one. Yeah, scene no, no, no. Way, I, but, yeah. but you know, but you know what I'm saying. It, yeah. Her. Her character's a lot more self-possessed than Marla and doesn't really enter into codependency with Emil or Yoav. She seems very emotionally fulfilled on her own. Yeah. Which, again, stops her from feeling like too much of a stereotype or too much of a flat character. Even if we don't get everything about her life 
on screen or on mm. page, I don't view her as being flat. I view her as having her life just occurring not on screen. But I don't doubt that life exists. I don't think she stops existing when the camera isn't on her, like some female characters do. I think that's fair. Interestingly, I, I thought Yav being a loose analogue for Tyler, I agree that that's largely, like, if we were going to put that framework onto it. Um, but also that him with, you know, kind of, like, military background, like, like super machismo, like, all, all, all of that side to it, and, like, fight, 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 I've been in the military, all of this stuff. All of that, I also think, would be something that, maybe not the narrator in Fight Club, but people, maybe, like, members of Project Mayhem or whatever, people that idolise Tyler, would see as positive in Yav, whereas Yav feels imprisoned by them. Um, I will say, though, just to add a caveat to that, is that in Israel, military service is something every citizen does. So the idea of it being impressive to do military service, Mm. I think only really exists as impressive in France. Yeah. In in the film. It is impressive to Emile when he tells all those war stories. Yeah, that's that's true. I I was thinking about the people who are the most macho seem to be other Israelis. Or it's the fact also he was awarded a medal in a very, very tacky ceremony <laughs> at a military funeral. Just small bonus point. The song that they're singing, mm. do you know it? No. And I wanted to, I was annoyed that they weren't subtitled to tell me what they were saying. Do you, you recognise it? That is a song called Hallelujah. And it is the only Eurovision winning song by Israel until recently. That's fabulous. Because <laughs> they won a couple of years ago, I think. Mm, they did, yeah. But I think it was like in the 70s, it's a... <laughs> and I remember hearing it come to a Jewish primary school, learning it yeah. for a concert, and it's like very, very famous in Israel. And the fact they're seeing that, it's just that it's that so makes poppy. makes that so much better. It's, oh, and yeah. like, to me, knowing what that was, I was like, this is so funny and I can't wait to tell Francesco and Antonia <laughs> that they're singing that. a Eurovision song. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I mean, a lot of his disdain for Israel and his desire to share this Israeli identity, it's implied, not explicitly shown, but it's implied to be rooted in trauma. And we don't know what type of trauma. Again, we're talking about military service, we're not talking about him fighting in a war or anything like that. But there is one moment in the film, and I'm not going to spoil the circumstances because they're bizarre, where he suddenly finds himself speaking Hebrew, and that triggers PTSD, like, clearly. So we don't quite see what he, the extent of what he lived during the military, and all the flashbacks are like these almost idyllic, funny, campy moments, which actually kind of, like, works with the critique of the film of, like you know, this facade of the military basically uh, hiding something a bit seedier underneath. But then if you watch Nadav Lapid's newest film that came out last year, Ahed's Knee, where... Is that also a French co-production? No, that's uh, an Israeli film in Hebrew uh, set in Israel. I'll check it out. The main character in that one is explicitly an Nadav Lapid self-insert from the present day, whereas Yoav is actually an Nadav Lapid self-insert from when he was in his 20s, which is kind of interesting or self-critical, it seems to be of himself, but I'm digressing. And in Ahed's Knee, there are a lot more explicit flashbacks to his time in the military, 
which I don't know if they're telling real stories or not, but are quite jarring and clearly quite traumatic. And don't involve battle, but they just involve the military culture mm-hmm. between the soldiers and the bullying and, and stuff like that. So again, these are sub- subtext and synonyms, but if you watch this alongside the director's next film, there is a sense that, that yeah, that this is a fucked up traumatised character, basically. Can I give a bit of context to my viewing experience? We can mm-hmm. cut this if I don't uh, explain it well mm-hmm. enough. But So, um, Francesco very generously texted me when he was choosing between this film and Votrevay, and knowing that I'm quite sensitive about talking about certain things, he asked, would you have a problem talking explicitly about a film that is critical of Israel? Or at least it involves a character that is critical of Israel as a, as the protagonist. And we know now as the director insert. What impressed me about the film is the nuance that it has. I think the ultimate revelation of the film is that Yoab's problems that he thinks he has with his home country are problems that he has with nationalism everywhere. Mm. Yeah, And learning that France has its own troubles with the right wing with nationalism, rooted into its very existence when he learns the national anthem Mm. in a wonderful scene, Mm. realising that wherever he goes, he's going to be followed by things that he thought were specific to Israel. And I hope that the end means that he looks like I care about that character, and I think partly because of the film, partly because of the performance, that he ultimately regains clarity enough to know that it's not enough just to run from something you disagree with Mm -hmm. because that thing isn't specific to a single place or a single time you have to actually believe in something and take a stand where you find the problem and to him the problem yes there's a problem in france but the initial problem that he has and is defining his character for the duration of the film is his problems with israel Mm -hmm. but it's not enough to run from that and deny who you are and say, and we didn't quite get into the fact that he's adamant that he's French mm-hmm. and he wants to be a French person, yeah. that he wants to only speak French and he won't speak Hebrew, that he realises that the things that matter to him are things that he has to fight for and he can't just run away from and expect them to fall into his lap in a perfect utopia. Mm. Yeah. And I think, uh, I hope I, uh, that made sense. Yeah, well, that's, that's, yeah. But, yeah. But, uh, I want to explain my reservations when I was watching the film. And, and I always, I was happy to talk about the film. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try to not talk about the political situation because I know it's extremely polarizing and I have my own views, which are. Well, we have about three hours to go. <laughs> uh, well, exactly. Well, 3,000 years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and I really appreciated that nuance that it was a. In the, in the way that, you know, when Trump got elected, everyone was like, oh, I'll move to Canada if Trump gets elected. It's like, no, stay and fight. That's what we have to do. Hmm. It, it, it's immediate and impulsive to want to run, and it's totally human, but I think I'm rambling, but you get my point. Yeah, Honestly, uh, yeah, but there's also a lot of this film that is not specific to the Israeli experience, and that no. it's really about the immigrant experience and the experience of learning a new language and assimilating yourself into that new space, which I think it's like, while pushed a bit to an extreme in this film, uh, a lot of just migrants can probably relate to. Well, there's an Israeli diaspora community in France that Yoav wants nothing to do with, and that's Mm -hmm. also such an interesting wrinkle. When he does, he's clearly not comfortable. That was actually one of my main reasons to bring this film onto Fight Club. Because there is a Fight Club. Basically, yeah. The the, the whole... uh, So 
he works for a brief spell uh, at the Israeli embassy as a security guard. And all the guys there, who are, I think, a mixture of Israeli and some French guys as well, are these, like... It's it's implied French Jews. Yeah, exactly. All the guys working there are these uh, hyper-masculine, big, burly guys who are so... They're basically a bunch of meatheads, and they're incredibly stupid. There's this scene where two guys meet each other for the first time and start wrestling on the floor, <laughs> uh, and, and then you have it's just cheering them on and be like, fight, 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 and then they stand up and hug and shake hands. and like, yeah, that, that's Fight Club. That's what Fight Club's about. It's about this like instinctual aspect of masculinity that leads you to behave like an animal and mistake it for like societal camaraderie or something but, like but, that. But also that there is a literal Fight Club. That there is a fighting match between French Israelis and neo Nazis mm. set up that they recruit another Israeli and and yes, is Yoav coming? And he says, No, he's precious material. <laughs> <laughs> which is quite, which I found very funny. The other thing that also ties it to Fight Club, and I, the film definitely stands on its own as an interesting film outside of the similarities, mm. but while we're on the subject, is the way that when Yoav doesn't want to talk about something, he will start talking about something else. And the person he's talking to will read thematic resonance into that. So when he's mm. talking to Michelle and he wants to talk about stuff that Yoav just isn't comfortable with, he starts talking about Hector and Achilles and the Trojan War <laughs> yeah. in great detail. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And clearly like views you know, the Trojan War as analogous for the Israel-Palestine conflict. I don't know which side he sees as who, but he's told that he reminds him of Hector. Just to quickly go back to something I was saying before is that if you are listening to this and you are very anti-Israel and you're put off from watching an Israeli film, or you're very pro-Israel and are put off from watching a potentially anti-Israel film, as I said before, the ultimate conclusion of the film is more nuanced than that and isn't that specific to the real-life conflict happening there and, you know, in which a lot of people are suffering, quite frankly, and a lot of people are still traumatised by the film stands on its own regardless of your politics and the point it makes will appeal to anyone that doesn't subscribe to nationalism, essentially. Mm. So that, that's, all I'll say, that's all I'll say on that. You, you know it's serious when they're like, okay, the Jews talking about Israel, they're going to be quiet. For I have a completely irrelevant thing to say. Oh, yeah, tell, <laughs> tell me now your, it's my time to shine. <laughs> tell, me, tell me your deep thoughts. My deep thoughts... <laughs> 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 I'm so very tired. Um, another like tie to Fight Club. Uh, speaking about um, the kind of uh, monotony of uh, the narrator's life, IKEA catalog, shithead, whatever. Going to Tyler Durden life. That's just another different machine, and you're a mindless cog in that. The same thing. Well, not same thing, but analogous to me of the whole like, nationalism leaping into another kind of it, thinking you're running away from it, and then you end up in those assimilation classes in France reading the lyrics of the National Anthem and being like, oh, and there's even that one very explicit shot of him looking out the window and there's all the bars on it. Yeah. And it's like, it's visually immediately obvious that it's like you walk from one cage into another one. Yeah. Um, which is similar I mean, to... I mean, he, he literally he breaks bars or he breaks <laughs> barriers to... Which is in the trailer. It's not a spoiler if it's in a trailer. Oh, yeah. Where he's clearly like projecting his sort of surface level feelings about... Mm about conflict into the Israeli embassy by saying, no, everyone come in, it's raining. Yeah. and then, <laughs> Which I love that scene so much. And I love that the consequences are about what you expect. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. It, it, it's, there's a lot of stuff that is it's more, you know, flowery, but also more banal than... Or, or a lot of films about masculinity. 
the the language is extremely over the top and eloquent but the actual events by and large are quite boring yeah. <laughs> and monotonous yeah. i mean talk about monotony you talk about you know his diet yeah no that oh, that's on, that yeah. scene was actually one of the first things i thought about when i was speaking for fight club because in fact, we have those early scenes with uh, the narrator's voiceover describing his humdrum existence. And then in this you have, um, he gets gifted a bunch of very expensive uh, shirts by Emil. And I'm not going to spoil what he does with those shirts, but it's <laughs> it's quite reminiscent it's, of something it's, that... Yeah. It's, it's, not, um, it's not gross. No, no, no. You make it sound, I'm not going to spoil no, just it. Like he's doing yeah. something like really dirty. No, 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 no. It's just <laughs> funny. Not spoil the exciting shirts. It, it, it's just a really funny guy. Stay tuned. Yeah. Shirts. Yeah. I, I really like it. But also, it turns on its head something... I think it does show quite starkly the, the sort of emptiness of minimalism. <laughs> the, mm. He doesn't get anything out of eating the same meal no. every day. And, like, he is earning money. He does, as you mentioned, he does have a job. He also like he's got a meal. Just gives him like lots of cash. <laughs> so it's it's clearly a deliberate thing that he lives that he lives on the cheapest pasta and tomato sauce. Mm. He's de- you know, he's punishing himself. He's depriving himself. I, I was and it's I was so boring. To, I was about to say like again. I want to discuss this so in its own right, but you know, there's the nature of the podcast. Similarly to Fight Club, he's <laughs> self-destructive. Like, he's fundamentally Mm. doing all these things, not because he wants to do them or or needs to do them, but because he has this internalized uh, hatred of himself and self-destructiveness. I think all the Israeli characters in the film are self-destructive. Yeah. You have Yaron goes up to people and tells them he's Israeli, hoping that someone's going to start a fight with him, showing a real identity crisis on his part, that he needs to be able to defend his identity in order to Mm. feel at one with his identity. And you have Michel, who is French, who is chasing out war zones in order to capture the Israeli experience because he's not happy with his life as a member of a diaspora. Mm-hmm. And he re- refers to himself as just like, just a French Jew, as if that's, there's something detestable about that. And that's also mm. something I don't particularly like, not so much about Israeli politics, but about the way Israeli culture went, particularly under Netanyahu, is this sort of disparaging of the European Jew, of the bourgeois Jew. Mm. That if a Jew isn't ready to pick up a rifle and fight for his homeland, he's not a Jew. And, I, and as a Jew that isn't picking up a rifle, that, that's something that I kind of resonated with when someone was talking about their feelings of feeling emasculated as a diaspora Jew by the hyper-masculine Israeli Jew. I, there's something very telling and fun about it. You have, on the one hand, people who need to be violent in order to justify their existence. They need to be under threat in order to justify their identity. And you have diaspora Jews who need to prove their manhood by being militaristic. Yeah. And, you know, that's... Um, everyone's going quiet again because the Jews talking well, about Israel. Speak, speaking of manhood, uh, content warning, there's a lot of penis in this film. Yeah. Like there, a lot. There, there is. Yeah. Uh, there's one penis, but there's a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. It's the same penis. But it's, it's there frequently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, thoughts on that? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, there is something almost fruitless about Yoav's endeavours of assimilation that you can assume that if he were a bit older or if he stayed in France for a bit longer, he would uh, give up this facade of trying to be French. But we're only seeing the first few months of his stay in France, so obviously we're only seeing this immediate like yeah. desire to create this rapture from your older self. That's, that's, that's true. 
<laughs> All right, let's talk about availability. Short conversation, it's nowhere. It's nowhere in the UK, it's everywhere in the States. So if you live in America where you have a VPN, it's like on Amazon, YouTube, uh, basically everywhere that you can rent a film. Lucky Americans, nothing bad ever happens there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now let's move on to our next film. Yeah. Face front and keep driving. The Hitchhiker, a 1953 film directed by Ida Lupino. Roy and Gilbert's fishing trip takes a terrifying turn when the hitchhiker they pick up turns out to be Emmett Myers, a sociopath on the run from the law. My phone went off. He's killed before. <laughs> He's killed before, <laughs> and he lets the two know that as soon as they're no longer useful, he'll kill again. The two friends plot an escape, but the hitchhiker's peculiar physical affliction, an eye that never closes even when he sleeps, makes it impossible for them to tell when they can make a break for it. <laughs> Sorry, it's a thing I do when we've got like, a particularly old film. <laughs> I do like an old-timey radio voice. Uh, yeah, so I... Hadn't seen this film, but I'd been meaning to for a long time. Uh, I knew I wanted to do a film that dealt with masculinity directed by a woman. And seeing it from that perspective, because unlike you two, uh, I actually care about uh, female filmmakers. I was yeah, going to do I actually hate women. <laughs> <laughs> the girls. You don't Who are you? Edward Norton in the 1999 David Fincher movie Fight Club? Yes. <laughs> no, um, and this one looked really interesting, and I kind of set myself the challenge of finding the links to Fight Club in it, and I think there are actually uh, more than you'd think. Uh, but just to get a quick idea, what do you guys think of this film? I just thought it was a brilliant thriller, like the uh, the central figure of just having this guy who never sleeps. Constantly has a gun pointed at the two main characters. It's like it's part of his arm. Yeah, it's like his arm is like frozen, and it's and that that ever present threat that hangs over the entire film. That you never know how it's gonna end up. I, for a moment, I thought, oh, it's, it's just gonna kill them at the beginning, and or like, oh, they're gonna kill him, and it's gonna be. It's gonna like, be more of a cat and mouse thing with the police. Yeah, something like that. But then the fact that the tension remains the same basically all the way through the end was, I thought, was brilliant. And it's such a short film. Yeah. But you can get away with it being a very simple conflict mm. mm-hmm. without any without any twists. It's just simply, this situation sucks. I hope he doesn't kill us. And that's the whole <laughs> film, and it's great. This is a lean 71-minute film, which is great when you have to watch four of them for a podcast. <laughs> what did you think, Antonia? I actually quite enjoyed it. I think I, I do often, and I don't like this about myself makes me feel like a philistine a philistine um but like, it's getting later and i'm getting tired um and that's fine you can keep any of that in um that i do sometimes struggle with very broad strokes here but just old films and i wish i didn't but i think it's it's the 
maybe my monkey brain just wants more intense stimulation from things. I can I say we have watched a fair amount of old movies together? We have, yeah. And and it's not that I don't enjoy them, but I do find them like quite a lot of effort to pay attention to. I don't find myself as quickly engaged and I have to keep reminding myself to listen. Am I right in saying that your favourite kind of old movie is one with just a mean older woman? Well, obviously. <laughs> and this movie didn't have that. And yeah, maybe that it was it. Be... There weren't any horrible women. Gloria Swanson didn't turn up wearing <laughs> yeah. a monkey. There are no women. There are no women. There is a little girl. True. Which is interesting because Ida Lupino's previous films had all been, you know, quote-unquote, women's pictures oh, but this mm. clearly deliberate that is trying to create mm. this like man's space yeah what, what i will say though so what whilst i in general do find that I, I i find a lot of older films i have to really try and pay attention yeah which i don't like about myself but it's just how it is um and i'll do nothing to change it if you don't like me at my worst then go away because <laughs> <laughs> that's all there is um, this isn't you being tired, this is just you. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just you. I, I think the thing is, is I've been at work all day, so I've had to, I've had to shut that down. So now, now I'm releasing myself from my cocoon of my job. Um, <laughs> You're um, like, just like Edward Norton in the yeah. 1999. I'm addicted to Ikea, I can't stop. <laughs> um, I did find this film funny. I think it is funny. It is funny. It is I, funny. I, how does menacing... Uh, Emmett Myers is. <laughs> it's it's there's something it's, funny about it. It's just <laughs> the way oh. that he never sleeps. And William Talman is so scary in this film. It's so funny. And like we were talking, about, he's got such an amazingly terrifying face. He's got a great face. Like such like a studio system villain face. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I love about his character as a villain is that he's terrifying. He's not a charismatic villain. He's not something you look at him and you go, oh, he's so cool. No, he's very... He's creepy. Some, he's creepy. He's, he's creepy. weird. He's weird. It's not something you want to imitate. He's not a Tyler Durden type of character. He's a he, weird man. He's really racist and, like, and, and very just like crass and crude the whole time. So I, I, I do think there is almost this context between like the myth of Emmett Myers and then the person who's just this like... Asshole. <laughs> there Basically. are four quotes on IMDb from this film, and three of them are by Myers, and all of them could be from Tyler Durden, mm. in my opinion. Mm. One especially, which I'll get to last. The first one is, my folks were tough. When I was born, they took one look at this puss of mine and told me to get lost. By which I think he means his eye. <laughs> oh, I didn't even... I just thought, I don't know, I thought it meant his entire face, or... I had a watch like this once when I was 17. Nobody gave it to me. I just took it. I love that line. That's my favourite. No, but that's in response to the other guy telling him, my wife gave it. me this watch. Yeah. So that, that that's what the... But this one is... is. And they're all kind of like uber macho. Yeah. But this one is particularly Tyler Durden-esque. You guys are soft. You know what makes mm. you that way? You're up to your neck in IOUs. You're suckers. You're scared to get out on your own. You've always had it good, so you're soft. Well, not me. Nobody ever gave me anything, so I don't know nobody. Very Tyler Durden. And that idea of rugged masculinity being the only mm. masculinity. There's that bit in Fight Club where he says, if you could fight anyone in history, who would it be? <laughs> and he says, Hemingway. It, there's a lot of that energy coming yeah. from Myers in that moment when he's yeah. sort of spouting his philosophy. Because I think he is more nihilistic yeah. than fatalistic. That he's like, nothing matters except what I can get and what I can take. Mm. 
and that these guys are bad because they think of other people, they have, they think of wives, they think of children. Which and, reminds me of that line in Fight Club when he's like, we're a generation of men raised by women. Which is funny, it's like, when was there a generation of men not raised by women in some capacity? Like, All the men were dead from war and plague. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? But the idea that it's like made them, you know, women have made us soft. <laughs> Like, you also that. say like none of us had a great war or a great depression and like the amount of people, men yeah. that died in the war or left their families during the great depression it's not it's all nonsense which gets to this yeah. thing of Tyler Durden's an idiot yeah. but what I think is also interesting that the idea that there is soft masculinity and hard masculinity mm. in The Hitchhiker is that this is in 53 yeah. the implication being that maybe not Myers just because he seems like such an outcast that's never belonged anywhere that the other two characters probably fought in World War Two, mm. just based on the time period. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, one of them is an able sharpshooter. Yeah, with a well, rifle. Th- so that, 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 seemed, that. Well, that, that seemed, I mean, they love guns in America, true, famously. True. But yeah. I get your point that they don't really like go into it. But uh, one of the actors plays him was a real war hero from World War Two, and. Yeah, the idea that we, people were calling into question the masculinity of men that did arguably, and I don't necessarily agree with this, but in pop culture, the most masculine thing you can do of mm. going to war and killing some people. So uh, it's interesting how long we've been having these conversations about mm. this generation's soft. It's raised by women. It's, it's yeah. raised on TV. It's raised on social media. Yeah. It's raised on consumerism. No matter what, masculinity is a lot of the time just defined by... A hatred of modernity. Yeah. Mm. And in the case of Tyler Durden, he wants to go back all the way to a hunter-gatherer society. I think in the case of Emmett Myers, he wants to maybe go back to a more frontierist, black hat era. Yeah, and it's all about celebrating the previous era and how good men had it back then mm-hmm. and how bad they have it now. Could you n- not also see that the the whole thing, comparing it to Fight Club and, and synonyms of those two men, okay, we don't know why leaving their wives for it to go on a little trip is it basically running away for a bit to escape everything and everything that their life currently has which being 1953 will be a lot of that era's values of what men have to do in the household and provide and all of that do they just want to get away from all of that for a bit on this random little road trip then they get interrupted by I steal watches (laughs) my arm is made of guns macho man um and sort of the opposite of, say, Fight Club, where you've got narrator seeking out this other version of masculinity, and you've got um, Yoav seeking out a new national identity. Mm-hmm. They've been kind of interrupted by an offer, I suppose, almost, of a new, of another kind of man. And they support each other, the, the pair. Obviously, there's like tensions there, but the kind of arc that I see them having is that they succeed or, or they, they find success in ignoring the lies and fatalism, whatever you want to call it, of, um, can't remember his name, Emma. but Hitchhiker, my, my arm is a gun. The Hitcher. The Hitcher. <laughs> uh, we're mighty Bush fans. That they kind of reject that offer eventually, and that's that ends up benefiting them. I think crucially, unlike Fight Club, the masculinity that Myers represents is never, in the la- again, in the language of the film, is never idealised, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. by the characters. He doesn't convert them, really. I mean, no. they become more rugged and more able to defend themselves as the film goes on, mm. but that's not the same as wanting to ever be like him. Yeah. yeah. And that's very different to but that's Tyler, ultimately... and it's very different to Yoav. But is that possibly ultimately why they sort of 
succeed in, in, in whatever, rather than them doing the equivalent of blowing up half of a big city. Because, because, they, because, because they have each other. Yeah, and because they reject that kind of... Yeah. He, he also says it, it's it's the fact that they're looking out for each other that means mm. they haven't escaped. They could escape if they yeah. were only looking out for themselves. Mm-hmm. But it's by solidarity yeah. and by teamwork that they end up bringing him down. So I'm going to make an assumption based on the fact that there's a 1950s film. You know, there was a certain brand of like gender theory back then that is a bit outdated now. But do we think that the gun that Emma is holding the whole time. I know what you're going to ask. It's basically the a phallic yes. yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's a of penis. Course, of yeah. it is, yeah. He's holding the phallus. He's holding the penis the whole time. Mm. So he's, he's withdrawing that power from them. But all guns are. Not all guns are penises. All guns are phallic. That's why I collect guns. It's also <laughs> That's why, why you I collect penises. <laughs> Can I talk just, a, again, a bit more, a couple of reasons why I chose this film? No. <laughs> I hate you so much. Go ahead, Charlie. It's your podcast. <laughs> You're right, it is. It was my idea. We met for lunch that time. Anyway, uh, I love that this film is a film from this era that's shot on location. Yes! Which, it looks amazing. This film, it's shot amazingly. Yeah. Everything just feels so, I don't say rugged, but like everything just feels very tactile in a way that I think that the themes of the film wouldn't work if it was like, Overly, you know, polished and soundstagey. It's very mm. western in a lot yeah. of moments. As Even well. though it is narratively more of a noir, mm-hmm. mm. and so that brings me on to the other reason I chose it is that David Finch has directed a bunch of neo noirs. Such a hallmark of his directorial style. So you got Fight Club, which some people interpret as that. You've got Go with the Dragon Tattoo. You've got Zodiac, and most famously, you've got Seven. And you, you might have some others, but those I think those are the main ones. And I kind of also wanted to pay tribute to that arc of his filmography by actually harkening back to a classic film noir that is dealing with the same themes of grappling with your own masculinity and gender identity that Fight Club is. Mm. Third thing, I will say this in the form of a question. How many female members of the Directors Guild of America do you think there were before Ida Lupino? Zero, I'm going to guess. Nada. One. Who? God, I was wrong! Dorothy Arsner. Stupid! <laughs> but she was the second female member of the DGA and mm. you know, made, a, made a fair amount of notable independent films she pro- and she produced them all mm. under the, the filmmakers. So I kind of wanted to pay tribute to um, Ida Lupino because mm-hmm. uh, I'm interested in her. Fun fact, do you know how she started directing? She had written and produced a film called Not Wanted which was being directed by Elmer Clifton and Clifton had a heart attack, and Lupino went, oh, fuck it, I'll just direct. <laughs> I wrote the script. But yeah, I really like this film. I think it's really tight, and I think this section's going to be short. It's a very short film, yeah. but I would recommend you watch it. I don't know. Is there stuff I don't like about the film? I, it's not that I think it's a perfect film. I just don't know what issues I might have with it. Um, I think... I would have liked to see more time dedicated to the two central characters and their dynamic yeah. and their interiority. And they're pretty, pretty interchangeable. Yeah, but it's I not, kind of forgot who was who after a while. I can't tell you which is, uh, yeah, which is which. But the film isn't about, it's about Myers. As a thriller, it's honestly like, you know, very often watching Hollywood films from the classical era, you kind of know how they're going to wrap up. 
You kind because of you know that... how they were forced to make exactly under a system, and yet with this film, I had the constant threat. Maybe because we had two protagonists rather than one. Yeah, the one of them. Someone was gonna die, and maybe uh, they do. We're not gonna. And say maybe that. they do. Honestly, but like just watching a film like this, where you genuinely don't know what's gonna happen. Maybe one of them dies. Maybe they both die. Maybe Myers dies, and all those three things feel tangible and possible throughout the duration of the film. Even if you know where the film's headed, it is still extremely tense and extremely scary at times. And I think that that is a mark of a really, really good thriller. It's like watching a film of a book you've read, but still being engaged the whole way through, despite knowing where it's going. Mm -hmm. I think this is a good film. Do you have anything you want to add, or do you want to move on? Uh I do not have anything to add at this time. Oh, so, availability. Uh, you can stream this on Prime Video, Plex, Virgin TV Go, and on Cult Picks. And you can rent and buy it on Amazon. So, moving on. Moving on. Moving on up. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Could I have gone from the king of rock and roll to this old guy in a rest home? You were an Elvis impersonator. You fell off a stage and broke your hip? Who was it? 20 years ago. That's where they took a piece of my brain. I got a little bag of sand up there now. Jack, President Kennedy was a white man. They dyed me this color. What we have here at Shady Rest is an Egyptian soul sucker of some sort. Some kind of Bubba Hotep. You know, a mummy hiding out. Feeding on the sleeping. Bubba Hotep tells the true story of what really did become of Elvis Presley. We find Elvis as an elderly resident at an East Texas rest home who switched identities with an Elvis impersonator, Sebastian Half, years before his death. Then missed his chance to switch back. He must team up with JFK and fight an ancient Egyptian mummy. Bubba Hotep, for the souls of their fellow residents. And it's a 2002 film directed by Don Coscarelli. Have I said that nicely? No. It was terrible. Okay. And we hate you. Well, it's done now, so... <laughs> Antonia, take us into the world of Bubba Hotep. Oh, gosh. Let's dive I mean, in. That synopsis doesn't even start to do it justice. It doesn't. It, I, don't, I don't think you can briefly, which is funny, given that we have to, it's fairly briefly, sum it up whilst putting across the 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 umami that this film has. I will say that the synopsis, the biggest hole in the synopsis is that it just says, with JFK. <laughs> no, but that, that is JFK. It's um, JFK. Yeah, they explained that he didn't die, he, they swapped him, and then they he's died. He's got him. sand in, yeah. his, in his brain now. Yeah. He's thinking with sand. <laughs> How did you miss that? It's oh, very clear, that, uh, it's not even subtext. Yeah, you're right. Uh, but... Just um, to explain, yes. this version of JFK, yes. who is the real JFK... Absolutely. I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, okay, J, JFK in the synopsis is another resident of the old people's home and is, crucially, a black man. Who believes himself to be John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Who yes. wasn't shot, but survived, and believes that his skin was dyed black. <laughs> And he's played by Ossie Davis, yeah, who is amazing. wonderful. He's such a good performance, and you probably... I, I guess he's best known for Do the Right Thing. Yeah, I guess so. He's the mayor in that yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Should we mention who plays uh, oh my Elvis God, we Presley? Ha- we haven't mentioned who plays Elvis. Bruce Bloody Campbell. Which is, like, such a no-brainer. <laughs> but what, what I love about this 
and I won't stick on this too long because that feels like it's going off on a big tangent just about Elvis generally. Although I, there's reason to, I'll get to it later. But Bruce Campbell's performance as Elvis, I love because it's it's surprisingly understated. It's, yes, it's so detailed. It's quite a subdued but but well observed and but weirdly believable Elvis. It, it's, it's compelling. It's as subtle as a performance of Elvis can be. Yeah. <laughs> Because he wasn't a subtle guy. No, famously not. <laughs> uh, but everything is very specific and rooted mm. in that version of the character. I think it's just such an amazing performance. I think it's a great Elvis. I mean, if you needed a reason to like Bruce Campbell, I guess you're not human, but this film might do it for you. <laughs> oh, God. This, this film. Do you think that Bruce Campbell is playing Elvis who didn't die in swap place with an Elvis impersonator, or do you think that he is an Elvis impersonator gone mad? I don't think it matters. I agree. But what do you think? I think he's Elvis. I think it's more fun if he's Elvis. I think he's Elvis purely because I'm so I'm so compelled by that version of Elvis as, as a performance that I want to think it's Elvis. Although, yeah, I I like that it's never truly confirmed. I think he's the real JFK. All his brain was replaced. We'll with say there is, there is. No, I, I meant Bruce Campbell. Is the real oh, okay. the, <laughs> and the real oh, Elvis. That, that is complicated. Yeah. That is a wrinkle in time, my friend. God. So can we talk just a bit about what ties this to Fight Club, Antonio. Yes, I hot seat. <laughs> I, okay, right. So, it's not. It, it's a silly film, like Fight Club. It is, but there's on a very surface level, there's some like editing choices right in the beginning that are very similar to the splicing yes. that, that Tyler Durden does. There's like all these like kind of glitchy bits yeah. the nurses going <laughs> buzzing around, which is like weirdly just a funny little like similarity there. But I think there is talk, mainly from I mean, you you also have narration from from Elvis Presley. Yeah. Or not. Maybe. Just like Fight Club. Just like Fight Club Elvis Presley narrates the whole thing famously. <laughs> but in in that narration, he does discuss at length his masculinity in a way, and not not just that. I, th- I think it's um, his impotency specifically. Well, yeah, as as a means, I suppose as, as a means talking about that, but obviously as it relates to his age, and so it's not obviously like a direct analogy at all. But I suppose there's a similar identity crisis. Not that Fight Club is narrator having a crisis about who he is in in a like that kind of way, but. There are questions about how you view yourself as you age that I think have parallels to, to some of what Fife was talking about. And he does talk a lot about how his willy doesn't work anymore and how how is he a real man now? Look at me, I used to be such a man. And I think it being Elvis Presley specifically is actually, <laughs> I think, links it more in terms of the masculinity angle and that Elvis Presley at one point in time, for a long time, was like the most famous man on the planet. And the most famous man on the planet. Like, the most famous and the most famous capital, man. Capital A. <laughs> in man. man. Um, <laughs> Italicise fa- it, capitalise it. for wiggling his crotch around, for getting loads of women, and was for a long time, at least in America and across a lot of the world, held in pop culture as, like, the king, the man that you all want to be. So I think... Him having questions about about that, I think, is particularly sort of not universally like applicable, but there's something interesting about Elvis as a, as, as a vessel for that. I think. Yeah. So you know that the setting of a mental hospital slash nursing home slash nursing home, yeah, mm. but like specifically hospital for the clinically insane is actually where the book Fight Club ends. 
it I gets it gets sent to an asylum. So that that is another link that you know the idea of him being trapped in a mm. system where he's being manhandled by women and mm. having to escape that through his camaraderie with a guy who's equally as crazy as him, mm. but also through violence. In this case, it's a more heroic violence because yeah. they're saving the world from an ancient mummy, Ancient mummy, again, which... whose existence is debatable. <laughs> but, but, but also it. it... <laughs> It's somehow the least significant main plot of the film is that there's an evil mummy. Yeah, by the way, there's an evil mummy killing all the old people, maybe. But let's go back to this part. <laughs> Everything that happens before that. I mean, Jesus. The other thing, I think it does have a societal commentary on the way that the elderly or the infirm are treated. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's that... It's a really funny scene mm. where Elvis's roommate dies... And they're carrying his body. I go, wow, this guy lived quite a life. He's thinking about how, how it ended and all the stuff he must have been through or something like that, mm. I'm paraphrasing. And then the other guy goes, who gives a shit? <laughs> and just drops him in the truck. <laughs> and they're clearly just not interested in their jobs. And also mm. there's that scene he has with his roommate's daughter who's coming to collect his things. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you, you, you were here, he was here for three years and you didn't visit him. Yeah. Which is, you know... Which, which That scene also has another interesting bit in it, which... I probably wouldn't like in any other film in terms of, you know, spoiler, there's a shot of her bum bum. <laughs> she's like putting something in, her, picking... Her skirt goes up. Yeah, as she's, as she's leaning, leaning over, over. to it. But, but what I find quite great about that bit, <laughs> what I love about that bit, <laughs> is the commentary alongside it as it pertains to the discussion of masculinity and that he's there being... Basically, his, his narration over this scene is like, look at what this young woman is doing she is like happily just bending over she knows her skirts up like practically in my face that is how much of not a man i am she does not see me as a sexual threat she's not remotely threatened by me or bothered by me and she's not doing it to entice me no no that she i'm she just, just a non-entity she just doesn't even view me as a man in, in, in that respect which is interesting if you took away the narration mm -hmm. from that scene yeah it could be a chevy chase movie yeah and mm -hmm. I'm not saying that in a good way. No. <laughs> the narration fills an otherwise like quite leering bit mm. with just so much pathos. Yeah. And so much sadness. Which, you're like, oh no, I Elvis. Think, I think this film has a lot of that. It's these like, weirdly touching bits in it that are like, oh God, Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> there's stuff like that that's like, it's funny, but also in a very tragic way. I mean, mm. I know Francesco has his opinions, but for the sake of this argument, let's just say that Ossie Davis isn't playing the real JFK. Okay. Just for the sake yeah, of argument. And how the film would be okay, changed if somehow that character was a guy that believed himself to be JFK. Th that guy goes off to fight a mummy. And Elvis, again, in a, the, I've got to know this big burning question. Marilyn Monroe, what was she like in the sack? Mm. And like, that's... Okay, like, considering all the discourse we're having around Blonde right mm. now, it's not great, but it's in the context, it's fine, I think. Mm. And he says, that's, that's classified information. <laughs> <laughs> in like the most deadpan, serious way. Like yeah. he's out of Doctor Strange level or something. <laughs> and then he goes, but between you and me, wow. And it's like, that's really funny that he's taking this so seriously. Mm. Maybe in a way that the real JFK wouldn't have. <laughs> um, but that he, he's so into this idea of himself as, as the assassinated president, John F. Kennedy. <laughs> that he is having 
fond memories of things that happened to another man. Yeah. And that's really funny. <laughs> it's really sad. <laughs> the other really funny bit with him, there's loads of it, obviously. The first shot of his bedroom, when it's just like a picture of Jackie Kennedy on the wall, and then a whole, like, almost like doll's house crime scene setup of the assassination <laughs> yes. of AFK that he plays with like a doll's house. And then when he's there's, convinced... a, there's a picture of um, Lee Harvey Oswald on the wall as well. There's a mugshot of Oswald. <laughs> It's when they first like hear about the mummy before he went to the mummy. He's like, it's Linda B. Johnson. He's just convinced this. This is why I believe that he is Elvis and he is not JFK. Obviously, there are reasons to not think it's JFK. <laughs> but if we just to entertain this, part of delusion mm. or a disorder that means you don't understand who you are is you know obsession and rationalization. And he's clearly put a lot of thought into justifying his existence as assassinated white president John F. Kennedy yeah. from Boston. He doesn't have a Boston accent, <laughs> but so I'm just mentioning from Boston. Whereas half or Elvis never does that. No. He's just, I'm Elvis. Yeah. I don't need to just, he knows who he is. He knows how he got there because this thing happened to him. Because Elvis was And he's telling people, obviously he's telling people all the time he has to fight for that, but he's not like trying to, how did no, I get he isn't, there? he isn't he's not like, his way there. He's just like, he, and he's not manic in any way. He's totally no. lucid, which makes me think the most likely situation is... And he's he Elvis, is... and he's sad about that. I don't know if the film expresses this quite so clearly, but I'm sure that internally, in Elvis's mind, he's seeing this guy's room, recreating like JFK's mm. life. It's probably like having doubts about himself. Am I the real Elvis or not? Or am mm. I really an impersonator? And I think that it works on either way, because if he is an impersonator, then this internal conflict becomes... Maybe part of his growth, but if he is Elvis, it's also interesting because now all of a sudden he's Elvis, but you might not believe that he's Elvis anymore. And at the same time, there's a film that works on the level of it works whether you think the mummy is real mm-hmm. or it works whether you think that, oh, there's a nursing home, people are dying because they're old and sick. <laughs> And these two guys who have the same delusion about being these famous larger-than-life figures are having the same delusion about a mummy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, killing everyone around the place. So, I don't know. Like, I, 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 think, I, I think it's equally valid. I, I, I get what you're saying. I'm just saying, it's, I said before, it's more fun if he's Elvis. Yeah. The other thing is that it's, the reason why the question of whether he's Elvis is a question that I think, for the sake of the film, shouldn't necessarily be answered. Like you said, mm. you don't think it matters, and I... I broadly agree with you, but what's really interesting is that the only person who believes he's Elvis is a man who wrongly believes he's JFK. Mm-hmm. And that's also really sad. It's, it's a really sad. sad. It's, it's a film full of sadness without ever being a sad film. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's way more sad. tragic if he's the real Elvis. <laughs> it's sad yeah. if it's the real Elvis. Because yeah. there's that bit. No, I, I don't... I mean, it's sad that he's in a nursing home, but up until that point, which, yes, was I think 30 years ago in the film... Uh, he's been in a nursing home for 30 years. He was living the life that he wanted to live. He got to be Elvis mm. without being Elvis Presley. Mm. But then but then there is the point of him saying that there was a contract where he could reverse it if he changed his mind, but he burnt that contract in a barbecue accident. Which is, side note, I like that it's at a barbecue because there's something that the, the inherent macho thing that like men do when they insist on taking over a barbecue you ever think like yeah. men just think that they own the barbecue? So why was his why was his contract at the barbecue? <laughs> waving it around. Look, I'm the real Elvis. I also love that he describes it as a barbecue accident. It's a. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think multiple trailers explode in this barbecue. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a very masculine barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, um, yeah. Also, there's a mummy. <laughs> also, there's a mummy. Also, yeah. the, when he's watching clips of himself back as Elvis, or, or he believes the clips of himself, yeah. they are watching El- old Elvis videos on his little, on his little TV. Um, when he's like talking about like, oh, look at all these like, women I used to have, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then there's this line I wrote down. I'm like, God. What? Why are these nuggets of poignance in this film of all films? He's like, um, he's talking about like, oh, how how like great his life was before, and then he's like, oh, who am I kidding? I never had any pride. Life had treated me well, and the bulk of the bad had been my own doing. And there's something about that that I'm like, that's so that's sort of the antithesis of narrator slash inselly rhetoric of like male. Oppression or whatever. Yeah, like, like self commiserating, yeah. it's everyone else's fault. The sports. world's shit, the yeah. world treats me awfully, I've had a shit time of it. Um, hitchhiker being like, my, I, my life was shit, and now I carry a gun everywhere and steal watches. I show everyone my little gun. Mm, and there's something like, there's such wisdom in just this like old Elvis being like, who am I kidding? Like, actually, my life was pretty great, and all the bad shit, a lot of that was, was me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, you've seen Elvis, right? We've had... Yeah. I have a whole essay to write about Elvis. Yeah, I know, but this is a podcast. Not everyone knows you. Okay, yeah, I've seen Elvis. Oh, Antonio. I have a whole... I'm not going to go on my Elvis rant now because I'm too tired for that. I'm going to have three hours and it's not relevant to the conversation. And that's all I'll say. He wiggles a lot. Oh, who wiggles a lot? Oh, okay, so wiggle. That's uncanny. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Um, the other thing very briefly that I think there's something interesting about and obviously this is not remotely what this film is trying to say and this is reading something so much into a Bruce Campbell Elvis mummy film but I do think there's something interesting about the idea of impersonating yourself being sort of what it's a bit like to try really hard to project societal expectations of gender of yourself like I think to I can't speak to masculinity from my own personal experience but like impersonating yourself in terms of like yeah you're you're you but you're trying to project a particular flavor of that 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 you think people want and that is sort of like impersonating yourself in a, in a funny way uh, okay let's wrap up and talk about availability uh, it's not available for streaming in the UK although there is a pretty high definition copy on YouTube that adds an extra level of umami for me if I just on YouTube. But I have it on DVD. Oh, there you go. Okay, Boomer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you made her cry. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so just to wrap up, uh, I'm going to ask you if Fight Club is the main course, which of our three alternates is dessert? I think I know your answer. I think dessert would be Bubba Hotep. This was the first time in the entire making of the podcast I did something that I should do every time now, if I have the time, which was to watch my pick synonyms right after it finished uh, Fat Club as a literal mm. double bill. And I think that, you know, you guys had the same experience by watching it a few days later, but I really think that, especially at a time when I had doubts whether to pick synonyms or go with a different film, seeing them back to back really highlighted a lot of qualities in both of them that made them feel so complimentary for two films that are so different on mm. the surface that I'm going to have to go with synonyms for this one. Uh, however, obviously, if you're going with the literal sense of a dessert as in a film that's sweet, obviously Baba Hota. <laughs> and uh, The Hitchhiker would be if you wanted more of a classical 
example of the same taste that maybe Fight Club gives you in its very like contemporary taste. Maybe that's the sorbet because it's it's it's, it's, it's shorter, it melts quicker, uh. <laughs> and that it's more kind of a steady yeah. note, which I suppose a palate cleansing sorbet also is. Uh, I would say. <laughs> You've made the case for synonyms. I would have said Bubba Hotep just an instinct because it's, yeah, sweet. But I think synonyms, it's almost like a contemporary update in a way that Hitchhiker is more of a retrospective of the same conversation. Mm -hmm. I think synonyms takes it and just lurches it up to 11, which maybe makes it a bit too full for a dessert rather than a main course. <laughs> and not that I think synonyms is necessarily a better film than Fight Club, but it's definitely something that would be challenging after you've had a full main course. So, Antonia Strafford-Taylor. Um, you can even say what you do other than your pure Yeah, yes, if you want to introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah, I act sometimes. I might be in something at some point. If you see me around, come and say hi. Don't uh, say hi. Our social media handles are at BCU Watch Pod on Twitter, at BCU Watch Podcast on Instagram. I'd like to thank uh, Molecule for our artwork and our esteemed producer, Jade Corbett, for her producing. Thank you, Antonia, for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you for listening.